So you, you might have three kinds of people, right? You've got the hedonist who lives or dies by the random chance. You know, if there's a banquet, they're happy. If there's not, they're suffering. There's the ascetic who shrinks from the world, seeks robustness, says, I will never, I will never eat or drink the wine because I will be sad when the wine is gone. And then there's the stoic who is uh, not sad if the wine's gone because they don't need it, but if they find themselves in a banquet, you know, don't mind if I do. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And I'm Michael Trombley. And today we're going to be talking about the book Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. Uh, do you want to kick, kick us off, Michael? Yeah, I mean, this was, this was a fun one to talk about. This is both one that Caleb, you and I have both read before. Um, and I would say, I mean, I'll just, I'll just open with this. I would say it's like kind of a life-changingly positive read. I think this is one of those books that I left with multiple paradigm-shifting ideas and really changed the way that I think about the world. And I think um, I've never really had that experience with many popular nonfiction works. I've had that experience with philosophy. It's part of the reason why I love philosophy. But I would say philosophy is usually a lot of hard work um, and maybe a bit more, I don't know, abstract or esoteric. Certainly one of the things we like about Stoicism is that it's applied, but it can, but it can be that way. Um, but this was not the case. But I, this was, this was not the case with this book. I found it, um, yeah, it had a huge impact on the way that I think about things. A couple of the concepts I'm sure we'll be talking about today, anti-fragility, but other things on top of that are things that influence the way that I live my life, the way that I really structure, um, my day to day. Uh, yeah, j just excited to talk about it with you. Cause I think it's a great, it's a great book for those that don't know. Um, this seems, I would say it's definitely a character. Um, he, he's a retired distinguished professor at NYU, a practitioner of mathematical finance, a former hedge fund manager, and I, I would say uh, a generally grumpy reply guy on Twitter. If you've ever seen him on Twitter, he will say mean things to people and be very snarky and very quick to block, quite a, a force of personality and will on there. Um, but I would say, I mean, I, to summarize his thought, and Caleb, maybe you have a take on this. I would say somebody that's really good at identifying, you know, we, we talk a lot about stoicism, about being disciplined thinking, about how changing the way you think changes the way you live. Someone who's really good at identifying mistakes in the way people think, first in perhaps an economic or financial context, but then uh, applying those or abstracting out those more generally to the way people live their lives or people's decision-making processes and identify, well, look, people make these kinds of mistakes. That's why they fail in the market. Um, if you can avoid those kinds of mistakes, um, you know, or recognize them and you recognize humans inevitability to make those kinds of mistakes, you can change your behavior accordingly. And then, you know, just, just do better in whatever sphere you're looking at, whether that's investing or, you know, any sort of any sort of goal or pursuit. Um, I first read the book in, in 2017, it had a really profound impact on me, as I said, probably my most influential nonfiction read, other than um, you know, keeping that category separate from philosophy. And yeah, looking forward to digging into it with you. Yeah, yeah. I love this book. I read I probably read it around 2015, and it was the book that sort of reintroduced me to stoicism. 
I suppose is one way to put it. I had read some of the Stoics beforehand, read a little bit of Epictetus, some Marcus Aurelius, and for whatever reason, they hadn't stuck out to me, but Nassim Taleb um, does talk about the Stoics in this book and shows what's practical about them, what's distinct, especially uh, about Seneca. And that is one of, you know, this book was one of the main reasons I dove back into Stoicism while I was uh, at grad school. So it's, it was, is also a very influential book to me. And on one level, it's an entirely enjoyable, almost like an airport book read. Uh, but on another level, I think it is uh, a very deep book and there's so many good uh, ideas it's, that are worth toying with in different practical and political or theoretical contexts that uh, there's, there's so much, so much to talk about it. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm excited to yeah. dive into some of its key ideas, what's good, what we don't like about it, and what some of these uh, other provocative remaining, remaining thoughts. Yeah, I mean, that was something I forgot to mention, Caleb. Well, again, like, so there's that question of why are we talking about this on, you know, Stoicism podcast? And I think part of what we do is 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 discuss, you know, different ways of living, different ways of thinking uh, well and performing well in whatever you set out for yourself, whatever task you choose. But there's a, you know, there's a whole chapter on Stoicism in this book. There's like an explicit, and I, I really love somebody who's making a contemporary theory of life, a contemporary argument for how to live, and then brings in the Stoics and engages with the Stoics as peers. That is, that's a real kind of, I, know, I really like that kind of content. Um, this team does a, a, a great job of that here, as you mentioned, turns you back onto Stoicism. Um, and so part of our discussion will be the discussion of the, of the key ideas of the books, the book, and then part of that will be also how it engages with Stoicism, how it represents Stoicism, or how Nassim argues the Stoics were, in some ways, the originators of some of the ideas he argues for here. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so let's, let's uh, dive into it. Great. And we'll use our, we have, we've got kind of a tried and true method here. We'll kick off with some things we like about the book, um, talk about some things that we think are bad or, or more questionable, and then some things that are just kind of inter interesting or provocative that are left over that we didn't get a chance to dig into. Um, cool. If I kick things off, let's do it. Sweet. So the first thing I want to take a swing at and Caleb interested in your take, I mean, this is something, this is really cool because besides stoicism, I think this is something that you and I are both really into that we haven't talked much about before. So feel free to, you know, I'm interested to see if, if, if you feel the same way or if you'd, you know, interpret these ideas a little bit differently. So the first, I said it was a really influential book to me. Uh, and so what I think is good about it is that it has really great ideas that have changed the way that I've lived. And I've pulled out three of those. But I want to start with the first one, which is anti-fragility. Um, this, uh, this, this concept of being anti-fragile, what with, with the book is named after. So, you know, Nassim presents this idea that when, when we're introduced to the idea of fragility, you know, you put, um, you put something in the box, in a box, and then you introduce randomness, you shake the box. And something that's fragile, when you take it out, it's been broken or, you know, the, the piece of glass you put inside has shattered or in some way it's gotten worse. That's something that's fra fragile. If you shake the box, it gets worse. And we often think of the opposite of fragility as robustness. I shake the box and nothing happens. Um, but actually the opposite of fragility is anti-fragility, anti which would be if I shook the box and I pulled out my 
my glass vase or something like this. It's actually stronger. It's actually a better vase than it was before. That's anti, that's what it means to be anti-fragile. So part one is just introducing this idea, um, this idea of, well, look, what we want to cultivate is not actually being um, insulating ourselves for protecting ourselves from randomness, from chance, from harm. We want to cultivate anti-fragility, which is this idea to actually um, benefit from this chaos, randomness, harm, hardships, things like this. So it, it, it's, it's, it's and another, another key idea that we'll get into later that Nissim talks about is this idea of kind of unpredictability of certain events and how robustness, I think, is a bit of a fool's game because you can only make yourself robust to things that you can anticipate. You know, you think, well, it's going to, it's going to flood here so I can build, up a, can build up a wall. But then when a hurricane comes, it knocks down the wall. And you go, okay, well, I'm going to build something up that will prevent against floods and hurricanes. And then an earthquake happens. And, you know, so if you, if you, if you try to be robust, it's always kind of backwards looking. It's always kind of responsive. And then it always runs the risk of an unpredictable event actually breaking that robustness. Um, and, but instead, I look at anti-fragility as almost kind of a virtue ethics. It's kind of an internal cultivation to develop a kind of a disposition to be forward-looking. So instead of being defensive, reactive, backwards-looking, okay, well, if, if, if X happens again, I'm going to do Y. If it floods again, I'm going to do this. You... you develop the kind of disposition to be forward-looking. So I'm the kind of person that can turn no matter what happens to my advantage. I'm the kind of person that can um, become stronger, better from these unpredictable events. Um, and so for me, that was a huge paradigm shift. That was, that was just a wonderful idea. Yeah, there's a nice glossary at the end of Anti-Fragile, at the end of the book, where he defines what he calls the fundamental asymmetry that in the abstract captures the idea well, uh, and he goes as follows. When someone has more upside than downside in a certain situation, he is anti-fragile and tends to gain from volatility, randomness, errors, uncertainty, stressors, time, um, which is a good abstract in encapsulation of the idea. And I agree that you know, if you're thinking about, you know, I want to become more resilient, there's that word is almost ambiguous you know does that mean that you want to withstand uh stressors randomness what have you or does it mean that you want to be able to thrive in the face of stress and it's important to make that distinction and that distinction can be action guiding uh in a useful way you know i think about um you know just generally you know just think about certain kinds of social conflict if, if this, someone gets uh canceled or strongly critiqued in a group the fragile person is the person who you know loses their status is completely removed from from that group the robust person is able to withstand it and, and sometimes you see both in the public sphere and probably also in private examples as well people who are able to come into conflict with others and that they're able to emerge in a better position either socially or perhaps even ethically from that from that conflict and being able to be the kind of person who's anti-fragile in this way uh, is often often a, a good thing 
Um, I think one thing that's so good about this idea is that it's less of a sort of, it's less of a focus on thinking about how do I withstand negative events, uh, but it's, it has this positive side to it. You know, how do I not just limit my downside, but also capture any upside from these, uh, from stressors, randomness, and so on, which I think is just much more, it's an idea that has more energy to it than uh, robustness, as it were, which I think is one reason why the the style of thought uh, caught on so much and became such a successful book. Yeah, it's inspiring, right? It's motivating. Um, you said energy. Yeah, there's something defensive about robustness. And I, I thought you put it really well with this idea of resilience. What does resilience mean? Uh, we talk about that a lot. And how do you define it? And it is ambiguous. It could be this kind of defensive, this kind of negative. It's like when things happen to me, it's as if nothing happened at all. Um, or it can be this exciting, energetic, empowering notion of, you know, when things happen to me, well, great. What an opportunity, you know? What a wonderful, what a wonderful time to be alive. And there's something, there's something, yeah, really inspiring about that, as you put it, really motivating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 I think so. Um, so the second one, again, I had never been exposed to this before reading this book. The second idea that I took from this book was the idea of black swans. That's a name uh, of a previous book by Nassim Taleb, which I haven't, I haven't actually read, um, which I think focuses more on this concept. And then he, he pulls it into this one, which is the idea that unpredictable things happen. That's that, that's just the, it's just the kind of descriptive fact about the world, that the world is the kind of world where we will not be able to predict we will never be able to predict with certainty what will happen but there is this kind of meta condition this meta fact that unpredictable things happen and that's predictable and we, we can be certain of that so that that the fact that black swans and those unpredictable things are the black swan you know there you you would um you would not expect there to be a swan that is black but then you're confronted with that fact you, you didn't predict it and now what do you do with it and um, so, so the fact that there will be black swans is something you can anticipate, but the nature of what will happen and how it will happen is, is obscured. And I think the important idea with black swans is it's not the idea of like, I will not know when it will happen. So it's not like, oh, there will be a stock market crash. I'm not sure when it will happen. It's this idea of something that kind of actually breaks the mold or the paradigm. And so I tried to write down some examples as like, uh, terrorist attacks, stock market crashes, or the invention of a new technology, or the asteroid hitting the earth. And I think there can be some ambiguity because there, there's ways like, well, insofar as you can anticipate it, you can develop robustness to it. But the black swan is the thing that you cannot develop robustness to because you can't anticipate it. So I don't even know if those, how well those examples work. And so my interpretation of the book was that the best way to deal with black swans and cultivate anti-fragility is to adopt a kind of Socratic humility to, to recognize, that, uh, recognize that you don't know everything, or to, in other words, to know what you don't know. Um, and so those that attempt to over-prepare or over-control or construct what they think they know will happen, um, they're, they're, they're caught most vulnerable. Because in, instead of, I don't know, maybe distributing their resources or their time and attention to the unpredictable, they say, well, I... I'm going to focus my energy on being robust. I'm trying to think of a, of a metaphor, but you know, if you 
you put a shield in front of yourself because you think the blow is going to come from the front and then it comes from the side and all your attention is focused towards, I'm going to be as robust as possible from this blow to the front. And then it comes to the side where you're actually, you're actually more affected by that blow than somebody who maybe says, well, I don't know where it's going to come from, or I'm going to prepare a little bit in the front because that's likely, not, it's not skepticism, but I'm aware of the fact that I might not be, I might not know what, what's going to happen next. Um, and so that's a kind of, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, Socratic humility is kind of a, a maybe a fact about the world. We, we try to think of the right way to say this. We don't know what we don't know. And that kind of can sound like a platitude. It can sound like, oh, obviously, or it can sound like a necessary condition. The black swan is kind of this external reminder uh, or manifestation of, look, it, it, it's not the fact that we don't know what we don't know. It's that we're vulnerable to these things that can happen. And so um, we want to adopt the Socratic humility to not just limit that vulnerability, but maybe put ourselves in the position to turn, uh, turn it to our advantage as well. Yeah. I think um, one point he makes it in this book and one of his earlier books, Fooled by Randomness, which I think, which I think is excellent. Uh, he also has this book, as you say, Black Swan, which uh, I personally didn't, didn't get as much out of that book as uh, some of his other ones. Um, but I think one framing on this is that as you're saying you know what are black swans key examples of uh, people often give is the housing crisis in the late 2000s but uh but on one hand you might say you know was that really unpredictable even people like taleb ended up profiting from it and i think one of his insights here is that these events you know, hijack our brains in a way we have this sort of narrative approach to the world we feel like we sort of almost predicted them some people find maybe predicted them retrospectively it looks uh much more obvious but there's like this general illusion that these kinds of events are predictable and that that we should realize that we live in a world that's governed by randomness whether the stoics might say governed by fate and fortune yes one part i, I do like about seneca is he's always talking about fate on one hand and then fortune on the other and i think that includes this these ideas that not only are so many events not up to us uh they're determined by fate but they are a matter of fortune which we might say today as uh random unpredictable if we're if we're looking forward and, and any sense of predictability is often often an illusion. To, to me, the upshot of that, and one of something that I think is core to Taleb's project or way of thought, I guess, to his worldview, is that I'll, you might think, okay, there's so much uncertainty. What should we do with that fact? Let's try to make it predictable. Let's come up with models, mm -hmm. frameworks for saying you know there's this amount of probability of a huge crash over the next decade that means we should allocate this amount of capital uh in these assets and so on these but making the, it's especially easy to i think to think about these the this in the financial context um but that that's one approach but Taleb thinks a better approach is instead of like going through these different scenarios, trying to assign, quantify them, thinking about 
you know, how can you build a system that's anti-fragile and doing this exercise of trying to assign values to different outcomes and so on, perhaps useful, but is ultimately uh, an illusion. Uh, and in the personal case, I think this is why he advocates virtue ethics. You know, you want to be the kind of person who will exemplify virtues in whatever circumstance you end up finding yourself in, instead of saying, taking a more utilitarian approach where you think about if I do this and there's this probability, this will happen. Uh, if I do this and this has this chance of this outcome and so on. Uh, you know, of course that kind of thought can be useful, but often it's rigid, uh, and fragile to being, you know, just having assumptions that are undercut and ruin the entire framework and the entire model. Um, so that's, that's how I see black swans playing a important role in, in, in its thought. Yeah. Man, I like that idea of those fragile, fragile utilitarians. <laughs> they don't know what's coming. Um, but that idea, yeah, if you, if, you, if you develop a model based on probability, you leave yourself vulnerable and fragile. If you, instead, virtue ethics, focus on yourself. Again, not this kind of skepticism. I mean, even the ancient skeptics, we, I mean, we have an episode on that. Even they, you know. They didn't walk off cliffs and say a 50% chance I'm in the matrix and this can't kill me and 50% chance that this is a real, uh, a real cliff edge. Um, they, they, they even made, even the skeptics made decisions based on probability. But there's this idea of if you focus on virtue ethics, personal cultivation, you'll be in a p better position to deal with randomness as it comes rather than, and I, I think we didn't talk about that, but maybe there's a kind of an edge case where you, because you have a model of how to explain the world, and then this, this random event occurs and then you try to shove it into the model and you're probably in that case, slower to adapt, right? Slower to adapt to the black swan because you're trying to explain it in a, in, explain it in a method that, that doesn't capture it or trying to fit it into a model. So you don't even notice it while it's happening. Um, whereas, you know, hopefully the, the this somebody who's working on their anti-fragility, their kind of, uh, virtue ethic position wouldn't, wouldn't have that kind of vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, one other thing, aspect I want to add to this is that another key idea he has is that often it's more important to pursue what he calls knowledge via negativa instead of thinking about, you know, what is the correct model that captures the way the world is? Uh, that would be positive knowledge. Instead, can you at least eliminate and ensure that you don't make disastrous mistakes. So that's why it has this via negativa, it's just a focus on ensuring that at least you're not representing the world uh, the way it's not and making, say, uh, exceptionally risky bets that ensure your ruin if you make enough of them. Um, so having this approach towards focusing on subtraction as a, as opposed to, uh, you know, always adding new things to your picture. I mean, I, I love that. There's so many good, so many great nuggets of wisdom in this. Um, I love that. That's something that I should work on doing a bit more in my own life. But like you think about that in any domain, you know, what should I eat? Well, I'm not an exercise scientist. I'm not a, uh, well, you probably have a sense that, you know, eating candy and burgers every day. If you, if you ate a bit more salads, if you, you know, drank a bit more water, uh, if you kind of cut out some of the junk food, you'd probably be doing better. 
um, or we talk a lot about contemplation of the sage. And I think there's something motivating about imagining uh, a stoic exercise, you know, imagining the perfect person, what they would do. There's something motivating about that, but sometimes people can be like paralyzed too and say, oh, I'm not the perfect person. I don't know everything to do. Well, if you can just get through a complicated situation, not doing in some of the worst things or cutting out some of the worst behaviors, then maybe you don't know what your life is going to look like in five years or what kind of person you want to become, but you know now you want to be a bit less angry. You know now you want to be a bit more disciplined, a bit less procrastinating, mm-hmm. um, unable to follow through on your goals. And if you can kind of trim the bad away bit by bit, um, maybe you're going to need some direction to really focus in for that last 20%, because really the, the trimming is 80% of it, right? Um, so the via negativa is, is such an important idea. Uh, it's such, I think, a way to cut through procrastination around improvement. You, know, you don't need to be able to write the book on the subject before you can get better at it, right? <laughs> I th- what, one, one nice example uh, of this that I see sometimes at Silicon Valley is this focus on um, like biohacking and trying to improve your productivity. I think sometimes you'll see people who are testing out, taking different stimulants in order to be more productive, doing microdosing, what have you. And that's that sort of that positive approach. Whereas many of these people, I think if, if they had better sleep habits or better really basic diet habits would likely get more of that, that gain. And I think that's something that's an easy case to pick on maybe, but a general illusion or temptation is looking for that positive fix instead of thinking about what are some potential changes or interventions I can make that at least reduce mistakes I'm already making uh, in this domain and whatever yeah, problem it, it is. Um, cool, cool. What else you got? So quick summary, we've got anti-fragility, we've got black swans, we've got learning from via negativa. Another idea in this book is benefiting from asymmetry or the barbell principle. So really, I mean, you, you summarize it really well at the start, Caleb. Anti-fragility is about being the kind of person that benefits from chaos from, um, I don't know if chaos is a bit extreme, but from randomness, from time, from asymmetry. Um, so another way to benefit, so, well, how can I be, how can I be that is the question. How can I become anti-fragile? Um, well, one way to do that and become the kind of person that benefits from randomness is to live an asymmetrical life, like an uneven barbell, you know, one of those things that you squat or deadlift and has a lot of weight on one side and very little weight on the other. So instead of living, instead of 50-50, it's a kind of 80-20, 90-10 life. And one of the, I, I still remember this example or the kind of paradigm he provides, one part of life. So one way to do this, not the only way, one way to do this is to live a life where one part of life is stable, constant, is sheltered from chance. That's your 90%. And then another smaller part is responsive to chance, volatile, uh, agile, um, able to respond to black swans positively and fluidly. So for example, you know, if you invest 90% of your money into something stable and 10% into something with huge potential upside, let's say, you know, a thousand percent return potential, like Bitcoin at the, at, at, uh, you know, back in the late 2000s, um, or, you know, you have a steady office job and then you dedicate your side time to writing a book, um, that has a small chance of being successful, but a very large potential upside if it is, um, and so this is this idea of, I, I think it's very practical, very actionable because it's a, it's a framework that you can fit in many different kinds of lives into. But it, if we, 
because a lot about stoicism is dealing with this anxiety that comes from feeling like you're not in control of things, feeling like life is out of control. And one of the tools of stoicism is the dichotomy of control, which is to say, look, recognize that there's some things that you have a lot of control over and then there's some things that, that you don't. And so a lot of stoicism yeah. is about like developing a positive relationship, I would say, with chance, with lacking control, with the randomness of the world and the kind of anxiety that that brings. And this is another way to develop a positive relationship with it, which is to say, put yourself in a position where you can benefit from some of it. But if you put yourself in a position where your entire life is based around chance, you go all in, you know, I don't know, on your DJing gig without any evidence that you have a talent in it and with a lot of people that depend on you for financial support, it's going to be an incredibly stressful life because you've gone all in on a random chance or, you know, you put all your money in, into the lottery or the jackpot. You've got all in on chance, huge upside if you win, huge risk, huge, um, I don't know, anxiety that comes with that. And so how can I have, how can I expose myself to the upsides of risk and chance and randomness so that I actually like it? I have a positive relationship with it while being pretty um, secure, pretty stable. And that's with adopting this barbell principle. Um, which is something I try to do all the time, put myself in positions to benefit from randomness without feeling dependent upon randomness, without feeling vulnerable to it, I would say. How does he define the barbell? I think it's, uh, yeah, I suppose it's that there's the idea of you know, anti-fragile, that's putting, you want to be anti-fragile, that's putting yourself in a position where you can benefit from stressors. And then one way to do that is to take a barbell strategy where you're safe you have this sort of a, a dual strategy you make uh, exceptionally safe decisions on one hand uh and then on another uh um you take some more speculative uh risks uh, so he says uh, in, in employment for a writer this would look like getting a stable sinecure uh payment and writing without the pressures of the market during this spare time. That would be the idea of you have a set and stable gig. You're maybe you're supported. If you think about some of these ancient patron models, uh, you have you're supported by a patron. Uh, get yourself a patron, ideal. everybody. If you're listening yeah, yeah, to yeah. this, get yourself a patron. Um, while being able to take uh, more speculative bets on uh, other other projects. So that's, 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 I think that's, that's one way to think about, think about the barbell, barbell strategy. I think in a way, in a way, this is, um, this is, I think Nassim Taleb does an excellent job describing the stoic approach to indifference in a way that probably is better than a lot of academic commentators, which is that, especially if you, and I think you see this, especially in Seneca and Seneca talking about wealth, where the approach to wealth is to see it as an indifferent, not something that's ultimately valuable. And as such, you want to ensure that you're the kind of person who can live well in poverty or riches you know, not make the moral mistakes that both might tempt you towards, but also, you know, it has this practical approach. Stoicism is not all things considered 
uh, anti-wealth, especially in the, in the Seneca uh, example, such that I think this is a nice way for thinking about the Stoic approach to wealth and other indifference is to ensure that you're protected from downside mistakes about indifference, whether that's on the moral side, you know, attaining wealth by ruining your character or on, you know, the practical side, having such an attachment to wealth that you're unable to survive the loss of it, or you are anxious about losing, uh, losing it. Um, and then ultimately, I think those are both, both the same. Of course, the ancient would think, ancients think about the practical and the moral in the same way. And I think Talab probably does as well. So you're able to, able to protect yourself from that downside, but also appreciate wealth when it, when it comes by or what, in, in, if, it, if not wealth, other kinds of pleasures, art, uh, whatever comes with the, the goods of social reputation and so on. Yeah. So the, so the idea there is that again, for that, how do, how do we expose ourselves to the plus sides while diminishing the downsides? And so how do we have a kind of asymmetrical relationship with those indifference? Um, and, and how is that connecting back to the barbell? Well, I think there it's, how's it connected to the barbell? I'm not sure if it is, I guess the barbell, that's that dual strategy. So you want to be safe and, uh, make, you know, make safe decisions on one hand and then just take maybe more speculative bets on another. Um, but I think it, it is related to at least the kind of thinking that generated the, uh, yeah, barbell yeah. strategy, which is this focus on okay. ensuring you're protected uh, from making exceptionally terrible mistakes, um, and but also able to benefit from the ra the randomness uh, of the world. Um, it's, and I think you you know you, it's a you, it's captured in uh, the anecdote of treating life as as a banquet, being able to enjoy the food when it comes by, but not suffering. The kind of attachment or craving uh, that could that could ruin either yourself or the experience. Yeah, so you might have three kinds of people, right? You've got um, the hedonist who lives or dies by the random by the random chance. You know, if there's a banquet, they're happy. If there's not, they're suffering. There's the ascetic who shrinks from the world, seeks robustness, says, "I will never, I will never eat or drink the wine because I will be sad when the wine is gone." And then there's the Stoic who is uh, not sad if the wine's gone because they don't need it, but if they find themselves in a banquet, you know, don't mind if I do. Um, and that's that kind of, that's that third option um, where you're exposed to the upsides but protected from the downsides. And the barbell strategy is one way to do that, but, but Stoicism has, a, you know, a different kind of strategy or hits on the similar things about achieving that in life, which sounds really appealing to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the 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 barbell comes up in so many different ways. This is, and uh, I think Taleb has a style of thought where he'll see a pattern and then apply it to different dimensions, different domains. So you can have a barbell approaching your career uh, and your life plan, uh, maybe even in your personality, and perhaps also in, in your philosophy. And that's interesting to think about 
you know, what does an ethical system that takes a barbell approach look like? Um, and something I've thought about before is I think it looks like, you know, virtue ethics with strong absolute prohibitions against doing things that compromise your character, but put you in a position to improve the world, which, uh, if, you know, that's the way fortune turns out, which I think is a, an interesting framing. I'm not sure if I've ever been able to capture to my satisfaction, but I think it is a, an interesting framing to thinking about, you know, how do you think about these ideas in the context of, you know, being a good citizen, coming up with a life plan that is a, a good one. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's a project worth pursuing. I think it's, I think it's a great framework. This framework of asymmetries, literally 90% of the weight's on one side, 10% of the weight on the other. So it's asymmetrical in that sense. That leads to an exposure to upside with a decrease in downside. But now there's the question of, yeah, you were, you were expanding that to the moral game or just like the moral, the moral life as in, instead of just the investment life or something like this, right? Like instead of a portfolio of returns, it's like the, the, the life worth living. Um, yeah, I don't think I have an answer for it or something to add, but I think it's a, it's an interesting example of how you can apply that concept in, in different settings, as you said. So another core idea from Anti-Fragile that is really influential to me is this idea of skin in the game. Um, and the way that I think of skin in the game is this idea of like, look, we, we want to think the right way about the world. And so we want to have a, a thought process that adapts when we uh, adapts effectively, right? I mean, I, I can think of this in like an athlete analogy. You want to become an effective basketball player. So when you play basketball, you should get information that makes you a better basketball player. You should learn from your playing. And so what ensures that you learn from, the, from your playing? Well, it's by having skin in the game, which means having some exposure to downside. So we've been talking a lot about protecting from downside but we want to actually have some exposure to downside or recognize when exposure to downside is actually beneficial. In this case, in ad, uh, adjusting our thinking or adjusting the way that we approach things. So, um, you know, the easy example is like if you put a child in competitive basketball and you make it, you teach them that winning and losing matters, they're presumably going to improve their technique or care about their technique because they, if they don't do that, they have exposure to losing, they have exposure to letting their teammates down. They have exposure to um, the consequences of their actions and or their decisions or the decisions of those around them. And so they'll they'll practice, but they'll also they'll study the game. They'll try to improve if they get committed to that. You can always be apathetic and say, well, I don't care if I win or lose. You can step outside of it. But if you have skin in the game, you're more likely to succeed. The That's the idea of skin in the game. The flip side of this, or Nassim's important point as I took it, was that actually recognizing how many people don't have skin in the game and, and using that as a helpful heuristic to understand who you should and shouldn't take advice from. So, you know, if somebody is giving you investment advice, check their portfolio. If they say, if they say, you know, you really should invest in Bitcoin, say, well, show me how much of your portfolio is invested in Bitcoin or Apple and it, or whatever they recommend. And if it's a lot, well, then they have skin in the game. That doesn't mean they're right. <laughs> They can have skin in the game be wrong. You can lose the basketball game and be very upset that you lost. But it's a, it is a helpful heuristic to know who you should be listening to generally. Um, 
the 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 other, I would say, the third issue of skin in the game is that there can be kinds of people that insulate themselves from skin in the game over their entire lives or over their entire careers. So, I mean, there 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 certainly is a strain of this book that I would say is anti-academic or anti. I wouldn't say anti-intellectual because this seems certainly intellectual, but anti-people that comment on things without having exposure to the consequences of their ideas being good or bad. And Nassim, I think, points out sometimes academia can fall into that trap. Um, and so, I mean, I'll try to think of it. I'll try to think of another example, but somebody who has had no skin in the game for such a long period of time that they're not even noticing that that's occurring or the skin their game, the skin they have in the game becomes the game of prestige, right? So I don't know, you're, you're an academic who writes on city planning or writes on um, some, some sort of practical policy issue, your skin in the game becomes getting your publication, getting your next promotion, getting your prestige to increase. That's the thing, that, that's the kind of game that you care about and the, the downside you're exposed to if you publish something that's not well liked by your community. The, you're not actually participating in the game of, well, are these ideas working on a, at a city level? Are they working with the populations that, that, that uh, this policy becomes implemented in? You know, like something like welfare policy, for example, the professor is not, you know, receiving welfare, right? So they might, they might have uh, they might make bad policy and not really care about that because they don't have exposure to the downside of doing that. Um, that's my that's my run at it. But so again, to summarize, this idea that look, if you want to get better at something, you need to have skin in the game. And if you're trying to learn from other people, um, be cautious of and observe whether or not they have skin in the game. Not that it means that they're right, but it's a it's kind of a general heuristic of who to take seriously or not when they're providing advice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's connected to this. Uh, another strain that's running through the book is uh, a focus on tinkering or allowing yourself to make trials and errors because that if the, these errors should be enough to motivate you, push you in the right direction. You know, if, if you're learning a new skill, always useful to say if you're learning a language, make an error, have that fixed. Uh, and move on. Um, well, of course, avoiding errors that might be ruinous uh, for you. You know, you don't want to put yourself in a spot where you might say be completely unmotivated to take on uh, learn the language or something of that sort. Uh, but you do you do want to be uh, able to tinker, explore, uh, actually speaking the language, uh, and so on, as opposed to maybe insulating yourself from doing that when that's your ultimate goal. But instead, you spend your time. Yeah, you know, on Duolingo doing quizzes, which is not the same thing as speaking a language or exposing yourself to, uh, you know, what what it's actually like uh, in any real sense. So yeah, there, there's that point on learning, which is great. And one other point to add to yours is that one thing I like about this book is that it's uh, so fractal. So you can think about anti fragility in a person, anti fragility in a social system and so on so there's a, a lot on entrepreneurship which works well if people are able to have enough skin in the game to fail you know particular individuals are going to be fragile 
even if the system as a whole can survive a given business failing, a given entrepreneur failing. And uh, that's, you know, skin of the game is sort of a systemic property in, in that sense. It has, some, there's, it has a selective force to it. Um, and that's what drives, in many cases, improvements as opposed to some system that didn't allow people to fail, didn't have any kind of selection, you know, so evolutionary in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I think you were, I think you did hit it on, I was focusing a lot on, you know, don't listen to people if they don't have skin in the game. One of the things you were talking about was that idea of like, you got to get skin in the game. If you're learning to write, you want to be an entrepreneur, um, you want to learn a language, you've got to get into a state of having skin in the game as soon as possible. And so, you know, that's the kind of fear of participation trophies, right? You're reducing the skin in the game out of competition. You're reducing the downside to competition, which is not going to teach kids who are participating in it, the benefits of it or the, you know, the motivation not to lose. Um, and that it makes me think of that Epictetus line about if you want to be a runner, run, you know, if you want to be a carpenter, build. And part of that is like doing the craft, but part of it is putting it out into the world, getting skin in the game, receiving feedback for your mistakes that is not ruinous, but is instructive. And you want to get to that point as soon as possible. Where I think yeah. what happens today is people ruminate. As you said, that they have an end goal of being a great writer and they won't ever try to put their things out for publication. They won't let anybody read what they write. And so you end up in this point with having no skin in the game for so long that you delay your progress, even if your long-term goal is to be a great writer. Right, and right. So yeah. I think yeah, I think I think part of stoicism too, trying to connect this to stoicism wherever possible, because I do think they have a lot of connections. I think part of stoicism is learning how to get maximum skin in the game with maximum resiliency to having that skin in the game. So, okay, I have the skin in the game. I'm gonna go and play a competitive game of basketball and I might lose and I have that skin in the game, but I'm not going to quit because I think my life is over because I lost or I'm going to uh, let someone be somebody read my short story, but I'm not going to be destroyed by what they've read or I'm not going to not let them read it because I'm so afraid of criticism. Stoicism, reconceptualizing what happens when we fail, putting it in perspective, giving it the appropriate value judgment, I think helps us, helps us do this, right? Helps us overcome the, the hurdle for skin in the game, which is really just fear, right? anxiety, fear about your own fragility, um, about your own vulnerability to what happens if you do fail. Right, right. Yeah, that's well put. So we, we've got a, we should touch on some things that we think are less than ideal about this <laughs> book. And then I think uh, move to uh, some more uh, provocative type questions or cool. some interesting, uh, yeah. outstanding questions for us. I'm going to nitpick for my, for my, less than ideal. I'm going to nitpick Nassim's treatment of Stoicism. So he has a passage on Stoicism, which I think is good. Um, and I just want to say, like, you know, I, I, I think it misses the mark. And I think he does a good job as a non-specialist. Um, but I don't, and I don't want to be like, oh, you have to only study Stoicism to write about it because that's silly. I think people should write about it, wrestle with it, engage with it. But I think he gets it wrong. Um, and so he talks about Stoicism being about anti-fragility not about robustness. He thinks people get this confused. And I just want to add a clarification. I, I do think a lot of stoicism is about anti-fragility. It's about cultivating the kind of obstacles of the way, 
uh, becoming the kind of person that can respond properly to, situ uh, to new situations, learn from them, grow from them. But I do think that stoicism, stoicism's ultimate goal is robustness, I should say, sorry. And you might disagree with that or think that that's the wrong final goal, but that's what the sage is. The sage is robust. The sage is, does not learn from things. The sage is, is, is secure, um, undisturbed, uh, you know, peaceful. Um, that's what the perfect person is for stoicism. But the progressor is anti-fragile. The way to get there is by getting skin in the game, by, by focusing on uh, learning from your mistakes, focusing on learning from hardship, adopting an, an anti-fragile perspective. So um, that was just a distinction that I thought was important to make. Um, again, nitpicky, but this is a Stoicism podcast. How is the sage not anti-fragile? I would say they're not anti-fragile anti because they don't have anything to improve on, right? They are perfect. Um, they have knowledge, so they don't learn anything. Um, they don't improve their emotions. They don't become a better person when randomness happens to them. They are already a 10 out of 10. So they are, they are robust in that sense. They can't get worse. Uh, or sorry, they, 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 they're, yeah, they're robust in that they, they can't get worse, but they're not anti-fragile because they can't get better. Yeah. Yeah. This might be one of the places where Nasteleb's not that precise about anti-fragile and there probably is a way to make it work where I would say the sage <laughs> is anti-fragile because they are able to use indifference well without ever, you know, making severe mistakes without corrupting their character. And in a real sense, you know, sages can benefit from particular situations. Or in some sense, sages can benefit. And then someone might come across and be like, well, sage really benefit fundament in a fundamental, <laughs> fundamental ultimate sense? No. But, you know, who cares? For you know, our purposes, you know, sage can be richer. They can have a nicer meal and so on. Is that what ultimately matters? No, well, of course not. That's why they're protected against the downside. But they're able to, you know, be fragile because they put themselves into in, in situations where they might learn new things or they might, uh, you know, there's a, a famous example of Thales making a bet on wine presses that ends up paying off uh, the philosopher Thales winning a bet and so on, which is, you know, is that, is that a technical benefit in the Stoic sense? Uh, no, but in an ordinary sense, uh, it seems good enough for anti-fragility. Well, I mean, I, I'm happy to, Again, I, I, this is, this is, this is a nitpick, but I'm happy to say that the, the Stoics anti-fragile in the world of indifference, because indifference can always be better or worse. Uh, you can always get more that you prefer and lose the thing, the ones that you prefer and get the ones that you don't prefer. So they would, they would be anti-fragile. They would not adopt uh, practices that make them overly fragile because often the things that come with being overly fragile are things that happen with us being anxious trying to control, trying to predict. And because the sages treats them like proper indifference, they'd probably be pretty good at not making those kind of foolish mistakes that come from overvaluing indifference. But I think 
I'm happy to draw a line in the sand between indifference and character. They are, their character is robust. Whereas I think the progressor's character is anti-fragile. I think the, the, the progressor's character is one that is, or the good progressor, the poor progressor's character is just fragile, let's say. But the, 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 the good progressor is the kind of person where they go to a party and they see people doing kind of bad things. I mean, parties like a hedonist example, but they see people uh, being angry or violent and they go, they use that as an opportunity to exercise virtue or they say, wow, I don't want to be like that. They use it as a lesson and they, they benefit from this randomness, this volatility, or they fail and they say, wow, it's a good reminder for me that I have a problem with my temper. So the progressor is morally anti-fragile, but the, the sage mm -hmm. is morally robust. That's, that's the, that's my point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, I, yeah, I agree with that. I, the, Taleb has this other notion of soul in the game, which is somewhat esoteric, but I think does capture the characteristic of being so invested uh, in a project, whether it's moral perfection or uh, something more specific, that you know who you are does not change regard whatever the circumstances is. Uh, which I think captures more of what, what a sage would be like. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep. Um, so what about you? What are, what are some of the things you didn't like about the book or thought could be improved? Well, I don't think anything, I wouldn't want to edit, edit this book. I thought, you know, <laughs> I think it's pretty good. Uh, but in terms of the, I think, ideas that Taleb promotes that might be mistaken or on the margin, one could move in the opposite direction. I think there is a sense in which he pr promotes systems, lives that are uh, closer to the ones he would prefer, closer to the ones his, his personality would prefer, uh, such that not everyone should take his advice or you know, even adopt his moral preferences so like for, for example he he rightly points out that having a system that's bureaucratic say a company that's based around calendars you know he'll pick on executives who are in some sense hostage to their calendar that life is uh in a sense uh in some sense is more fragile than not it is less autonomous but I think Taleb values autonomy being individualistic more than other people. And in fact, certain social systems do work well when they have these uh, strict processes and so on, especially larger, larger ones. Now, I, you know, he rightly pushes against systems being too rigid, um, but I would say that you know, in terms of his advice around, you know, removing a calendar, almost having this lifestyle of a aristocratic Mediterranean man who uh, uses their leisure well is ideal in some respects, but there is something to say for people who uh, don't find that, you know, either want, want more, you know, want more structure in their life, want more interventions. Uh, whatever uh, that's my i think that's one one complaint yeah. about about taleb i mean what i was thinking what you were saying is like look we 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 um 
praise the barbell, or at least I praised the barbell earlier for being a kind of a, a paradigm that you could fit a lot of different lives, a lot of different ways to live a good life that you could put into the barbell thing um, system, this asymmetrical system. And what you're pointing out is that, that at some points he seems to be criticizing just a layer lower, just like the kind of content of lives that he wouldn't want to live, like the kind of life where you have to be responsive to your calendar constantly or the kind of life where your autonomy is, is limited. And it's like, well, that doesn't really speak to necessarily a problem. In having the content not be the one you want to live is not, uh, is not the same thing as having it be a bad kind of life. Just the contrary, there's plenty of kinds of lives that uh, limit autonomy in certain senses that are meaningful, productive, good, offer something more than ones that, ha that are predominantly autonomous. Um, that, that's what I was taking from, and I, I, I think that's compelling. I think part of him, part of what makes him a great writer is having such a strong personality, but I think maybe the downside of that personality is, is maybe overestimating how much other people are like him or should be like him. Right, right. Yeah, he has this idea of you know, touristification and it sort of contrasts it against the adventurer or what he calls the flaneur. And he says it consists in converting activities into the equivalent of a script, like those followed by actors. And it you know, sucks the randomness out of life. You pass up amazing serendipity because you've scheduled some social event uh, in the evening. Uh, and so on. Uh, you make you make these kinds of mistakes uh, in your life. But uh, I think there's something to the idea that, you know, autonomy is uh, realized when you recognize the limits or the scripts that you're going to adopt in your life in a, in a sort of rational way. And I think that's, you know, it's going to be different. People are, are going to have different personalities, different life plans, different roles such that the what he calls a tourist may in fact be an appropriate life for for many people even if maybe on the margin many people should move closer to uh the adventure yeah i like my calendar the same leave, leave me alone i'm trying to, I'm, trying to read book here. <laughs> I'm trying to learn about it. i'm trying to learn things no don't don't be coming for me um all right what else do you got in terms of bad i mean I, yeah it, it's 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 this is this is like an exercise, and um, I have a lot of respect for the thinking. I think one thing about Nassim as a person that I, one of the things that I like about Stoicism is that it's very, very deep. It's something I keep coming back to and I keep learning more from. And to be fair, Nassim is one person versus Stoicism, which is like the school of thought spanning you know five hundred years of popularity. But I've only re read one other book by him, which was Skin in the Game, and one of my disappointments about it was that. I found it to be a lot of the same ideas kind of um, maybe played upon, like themes that were returned to. I didn't find his his second book as to be as great of a paradigm shift. And I think about this idea of, you know, the, the fox versus the hedgehog, which is the idea that, you know, some thinkers have many small, interesting thoughts and some thinkers have just one big one. And I wonder if Nassim is somebody that has one big one and has spent all the all of his works, kind of someone who hasn't read them all yet, but a lot of his works kind of ruminating on them, clarifying them. I, you referred to it earlier in this podcast as like, you know, kind of a way of thinking or like an approach to life. And there's there's something really distinctive about it. Um, 
but maybe it's maybe it's not the kind of thing that shifts or changes. That's not a criticism of the book, but maybe something that you know. I wish the other one was as good as this one, and I think it's maybe I, I had I had a sense after I read Skin of the Game, like oh, the first book is maybe this real inspirational uh, moment, and then the next one is okay. Well, we're kind of back where we were, just talking about them in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something to the idea that he he has had a few key ideas in his life and then applies those to different domains there is something to that yeah um i like skin in the game i think the book fooled by randomness is first uh popular book i suppose uh is very good um but they they do have you know declining marginal utility uh that's certainly true <laughs> Uh, oh, I should also say I like the bed of Procrustes. I think that's also a, a list of aphorisms that is also uh, fun to leaf through. He's not a hedgehog in the sense that, you know, someone who's a Marxist or a conservative, say, who say has these this rigid framework and applies it to different problems. Not a hedgehog in that sense, uh, but he certainly does have and when you're reading his his works, it d- d- does have a few core ideas that then he's applying to different different fields. What makes this seem less like a hedgehog, I think, is that many of his thinking is what he calls heuristic base or rules of thumb based, which means there is, I think, if you try to pull it together, like the way a systematic philosopher would, whether it's Chrysippus or Leibniz or Kant, he's not a thinker like that who has a full thought out precise system which is pro- both i think a pro and a con and you know if we move to some of the like some provocative questions that i'm left with there is a sense in which his work is a critique of the early greek stoics who were more systematic and an argument for someone like Seneca, who yes, he has a Seneca has a system in the background. He is a Stoic, but he doesn't spend as much time on some of these more. You know, I think of theoretical matters as some of these other philosophers. He is more. One gets a sense that he is more practical. Uh, he has this rhetorical flair that sometimes seems like he's just letting his talent run and saying things that aren't even that Stoic, uh, <laughs> but are witty or something like this. Uh, yeah. Um, and I think that's that's a sort of an open question is, you know, do you in fact need that precision of the early Greek Stoa or is something like uh, Seneca that's grounded in this framework but less tight or even Marcus Aurelius for, for that matter? Is, is that enough or perhaps even better, not as fragile? You know, it doesn't depend on a specific view of logic physics what have you i mean i love that i never thought of that before that's really interesting um because because one of the things that stoicism is proud about at least the early stoa is this idea of well we've got a system and then our system there's there's this often famous quoted line about how if you know if you can if you can prove one part of our system false the whole thing falls down that's how interlocked our, our system is and Maybe you look at that before Nassim and you say, well, that's really robust. It's really strong. It's really secure. And 
the seam actually looks at that. Maybe it says it's fragile because it's the kind of thing where if you knock down one piece, the whole thing falls apart. As opposed to maybe Seneca is not at, Seneca is not following a perfect system. Seneca is sometimes a hypocrite. Sometimes goes uh, you know wavers on some stoic ideas. But there's a kind of um, there is then a, 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 a an anti fragility to that way of living. I think about people with their diets. You know, if you have this really hardcore diet and you have a, you break it, and you go, well, what's the point? So the, the, your attempt to make this kind of secure, robust diet has actually lend its, lended itself to fragility instead of, oh, well, this is a bad day. I'll make it up with some good days. I'll have some fluidity to it. I've never thought about that between the Roman Stoics and the early Stoics, that kind of rejection of the framework before, um, which again, I think comes down to the, this, this focus on skin in the game, practice, uh, and the Roman Stoics on like practicing it and reflecting on students who are practicing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that also comes down to the, this this thought on it's related to it's really an, an epistemic approach that's more pragmatic and practical where a theorist is focused perhaps on in epistemology the true and the false always. But that's potentially fragile, right? You're just going to, as if you have an entire system that's built up, that's sort of serial, serially built up on its foundations. Well, when a given, uh, if it depends on so many assumptions, one assumption being false breaks the whole thing. But if you're, instead of trying to always aim for the true, avoid the false, you have some dichotomy like sucker versus non-sucker is what he says. Or you could think of it <laughs> as maybe winning or losing. Uh, in, in whatever domain that that's not as fragile to have it's not going to sort of thing that's going to be upset if you just have a single uh, assumption you know you're not focused on w winning arguments you're focused on winning as such and you're yeah. okay to have the perfect picture you just need to have one that's good enough to make uh, good decisions and well, not be taken in by terrible mistakes and so on it makes me think of Kant with that famous line of Kant, whereas the, you know, it's immoral to lie. And like, yeah, well, if a serial killer came to your door and asked you who, where your family was, cause he was going to kill them, would you tell the truth? And Kant's like, yes, yes, I would tell the truth. And it's like, well, in, in terms of like the liar, non-liar distinction or the truth and the falsity, but we, you don't really know how to explain it through that, but sucker, non-sucker, well, Kant's being a bit of a sucker there. Uh, if he tells the serial killer where, you know, the people he's trying to kill are, so there's that kind of fluidity that comes in that concept, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. One thing. What else do you have in terms of provocative? Yeah, and one thing that I that I really liked about this book, um, we've already talked about anti fragility being a kind of virtue ethics, but Nassim does what Plato does, which is he extends virtue beyond the individual. So there's virtuous government, there's virtuous business, uh, virtuous business. If we think of that as being kind of anti fragile, right? So we look at, well, what is a good business like? What is a good um, government like? What is good policymaking like? And then we can apply that to the individual. Well, it has this idea of anti-fragility. It has this idea of the people making decisions, having skin in the game. It can have uh, minimization of exposure to downside with maximum exposure to upside. These are all the things we could say about good uh, businesses, good government. And then we can apply those to the individual and we can kind of go back and forth. So, I mean, you referred to it earlier as being fractal. But this fluidity of movement between what we, what we can learn at the macro, we can apply to the micro, 
And that's exactly what Plato does in his Republic, but I've never seen someone do it so compellingly before, uh, or not before, but, but since Plato, really, in, in the modern era, these making these lessons, I guess pulling these lessons out to a level that really does cross apply. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, it's, 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 it's undertaking Plato's project a little bit there in a way that I think is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I really appreciate this, this aspect of his thought as well. Um, and it's interesting to see it play out in business and politics for Taleb in particular, you know, he think he has this focus on starting businesses, ensuring that you have that skin in the game, very specific investment uh, views on how to invest well. Um, and then also, you know, a, co- a collection of political ideas that don't map obviously onto some of the existing ideologies, but you can see how they flow through this very same principles or heuristics he uses to come to his conclusions in investing and, and business. Mm-hmm. I think there can be, there can be a kind of, you know, there is always that risk that you're being too much like uh, a hedgehog, as it were, when you do that, but. I think there's there's also an advantage to thinking in a consistent manner like that. And if you can judge, you know, the thinking by its fruits, I think he does relatively well uh, when compared to other, you know, so-called public intellectuals or public philosopher types. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, ag- ag- agreed there. Um, I think he does do well uh, compared to other public uh intellectuals i think that's something i think he stands by um at least in that public persona it can be abrasive but it, it seems um uh almost um out of principled in a way or internally consistent maybe mm-hmm. yeah he does have this provocative this another idea which is as a part of his ethic which is something like if i say something after you know three glasses of wine then i should say it in in person and writing otherwise you know i'm not it's 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 cowardly to to not do that it's not either not authentic uh or uh just um uh lame which i think is an i'm not sure if that's i'm not sure if that's true but is at least worth uh, thinking thinking through and perhaps uh you know if there is that that thought if you wouldn't say something in public when you shouldn't say it in private and maybe more people should move in that direction but other people some others should go in the opposite direction as well i mean that's something that i struggle with like being i guess provocative but maybe a bit of inspiration there um one other thing that, that i wanted to point out i mean this kind of connects to the previous point about being provocative saying what you think in in stoicism there's this idea of both theory and practice are necessary and i uh, but but you know, often there's this idea of first you learn the theory, then you practice. And I think the scene inverts this. Um, you know, this idea, if, if you want a philosopher king, better to start with a king than a philosopher um, is, is something that um, he says, and which I think is a great line. And so it's this idea of first practice, first do, then you kind of codify and you solidify by thinking about what you've done, thinking about what you've learned through doing. Um, and so he has these, this, these ideas about, you know, academics are often, or ethicists really, let's say if we keep it to the ethical part, they're people that just write about other people who have done, um, 
good behavior isn't generated by the ethicist. The good behavior of the excellent person is then recorded and codified by the ethicist. Um, and so this, there, there needs to be this idea of practice, action as the number one. Theory is then the codification or I guess maybe exploration once you have done. And I also thought, just going back to that line, I never thought before about the philosopher king as being symbolic of the perfection of theory and practice. Um, I always thought about the philosopher king as being this idea of, of um, an instrumental benefit, right? We want the kings to be philosophers because we want them to be good kings. But I, but I, I never took a step back and thought, well, the philosopher king is that per person who's figured out when is the time to quote, when is the time to do theory, and when is the time to do practice. And th that's a maybe a, a different way of framing Marcus Aurelius that I think is, um, I think is is it gives me something to think about. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I think um, something to uh, aspire towards, and again, another place where this the fractal nature of the thought appears, both both in Tele, but maybe even more deeply in in Plato. Right, right. Uh, another another line. The only modern dictum I follow is one by George Santayana. A man is morally free when he judges the world and judges other men with uncompromising sincerity. All right, we can end it there. Yeah, keep awesome. On reading to live lines. <laughs> all right, thanks for listening, all. Hope you found this useful. Uh, and uh, yeah, maybe we'll cover another book of his, or if there's not some other thinker we should we should dive into, let us know. Awesome, thanks, Gil. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and share it with a friend. If you want to dive deeper, still. Search STOA in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.